So we've uh, now been practicing here together for two days. And we might start to perhaps question for some of us, certainly from what Leela and I have been hearing in the groups, there might be some questioning about the title of the retreat, whether something about embodying the, the sleeping heart as opposed to the wakeful or awakening heart might be a more apt title for what's actually happening here. And uh, it's kind of interesting, isn't it? We come along with the aspiration to be mindful, conscious, awake, and some of the times it just seems so hard to stay, you know, even half awake. There's this way in which it seems to be that what we're doing here is exhausting. Like, it wasn't happening to me like that before I got here. I wasn't falling asleep every moment of the day, sitting, walking, standing, Anything I did, it didn't seem to happen that way. And then we come here, and I'm getting worn out, clearly. And then we wonder, you know, how am I going to explain this to my friends at home when I tell them after? Well, you know, I say, it was tiring, it was exhausting. I could barely keep my eyes open. They say, what were you doing? What do they make you do? Well, the explanation's a bit embarrassing. It's like, well, we sat on these sort of stuffed cushions or chairs for a little while. And we went and ambled back and forth, went nowhere, came back and sat down again. We stood around a little bit. Boy, it was hard work. <laughs> huh? So what's going on? There wasn't anything in the instructions or the retreat description about this, we don't think. We mentioned sleepiness a bit. We didn't say that's what we're doing here. And yet it's an interesting concept, isn't it? What are we doing here? We might have been asking ourselves that question occasionally too. Like, what on earth am I doing here? (laughs) There's a lot of other things I could have been doing with this day. And yet that very sense of me being here, doing something, has got a lot to do with it actually. And it's one of the aspects of what's going on that it's useful for us to really start to encounter, which we can't help but doing, and start to reflect upon, which is what makes it useful. There's a way in which so much of what's going on, we try and make it happen. Have you noticed that? You know, have you see, see things that happen by themselves, our breathing, we notice how we're trying to get our breathing to be, you know, right. It happens for lots of people. Would it be nice if it was calm, deep, smooth, and something really interesting or delicious so I could really be attentive? That would be just the right sort of breathing to have. You know, and yet the breathing's been going for a lot longer than we've been trying to pay attention to it. It's actually quite fortunate that it doesn't require us to keep it going doesn't require us to pay attention to it for it to function because you know who hasn't spaced out for three minutes be dead if the breath required us to actually make it happen and yet we get involved with most things from that point of view or that orientation of trying to make it happen trying to get something to happen here so what actually goes on with this process we say let's pay attention okay let's do it do it And so we bring our attention to the experience. And then something happens at some point which we don't notice. Because if we did notice, it wouldn't happen. 
Have you seen that? When you notice that your mind's about to spin off, if you notice it, it doesn't necessarily do that because, oh, you're present again. But we don't. something happens that we don't notice and we don't even know that we're somewhere else. But at some point, we realise, oh, I'm wherever it is. Not necessarily where we want to be, but where we discover our mind. And in that moment, what happened? What happened? <clears throat> Did you make yourself become aware again? By definition, we were unconscious at the time. We didn't even know we weren't here. So how could we have done that to get back? We didn't. Do you follow that? It's like the light goes off. Boof, it's dark, we're lost, gone. But because the light's off, we don't know. We're just out there in that world of the mind. And what a world it is. Gosh. And then at some point, the light comes on again. I can see, I know where I am. It's here. Who's got the switch? Because if it was us, we'd just turn it on and leave it there. But it's not, is it? And yet, something in us can't resist or refrain from trying to keep the switch switched on. Have you noticed that? Trying to stay present. People say, I can't stay present. I didn't tell you to stay present. But it sounds like that's what we're supposed to do. I, I try at least not to say anything like that. Maybe I do sometimes. But it's more like, oh, can we come back? Can we continue or reconnect or re-engage? Rather than somehow sustain it permanently. Sustaining is sustaining the intention to reconnect, to keep turning the light on, except it turns out we can't turn it on. We just make the intention, then somehow mysteriously it turns on some of the time. And yet there's this kind of way in which we're leaning into it. We're leaning into it, most of us. It's a habit of our lifetime. That's how we imagine and believe we get by, we survive, we live. And yet it tends to have the result that we kind of experience life as something of a bruising collision. I remember once spending a few weeks on retreat in the foothills of the Pyrenees in a little cabin. And uh, it had been raining for days. And it was the middle of summer. This was not what was planned. I could have done that in England. I'd gone all the way to France. It was raining and raining and I was in this little cabin. And one day I found myself outside and I realised I was, I was really tense, I was really tight, and I was concentrating the rain to stop. It was like... <clears throat> And it's like, you know, I've been talking about this sort of thing for a long time. I've been doing it for even longer. And there was I, <clears throat> trying to get the rain to stop. Now, it's kind of obvious and humorous to look at it, but don't we do that? It's really clear when it's out there that it's the rain and I'm just human being. I've got no control of it. But even when it's that clear, sometimes something in us forgets and says, No! Stop! As if the no and the stop is going to be heard by whatever's in charge of the rain or the light switch. And we say, stop turning that light switch off. We don't really understand what's happening here. And so there's a sense of pushing against the way things are that we can experience. And sometimes we can get quite frustrated 
with the fact that things are the way they are, that they're not fitting in with how I want them or, in fact, how I'm working really hard to make them. Because that's kind of a bit embarrassing or slightly sort of more than just irritating. It's, it's really annoying. I'm working hard on this and it's not coming together. There's a story I was sent by a friend some years ago which uh, is described as a true transcript. I don't know if it actually happened, but an actual transcript of a radio conversation between a US naval ship with the Canadian authorities off the coast of Newfoundland in October um, 1995. So it was a wee while ago. And it begins with a communication from the American ship that reads... This was back in the day before sort of uh, modern communications technology, so uh, they were probably just uh, sending the message across on their sort of radio systems or something like that. And it says, well, it's not radio system. You know how the ships, they they have this way of... Anyway, maybe I won't go into that. The Americans said, um, please divert your course 15 degrees to the north to avoid a collision. And the Canadians responded recommend you divert your course 15 degrees to the south to avoid a collision. And the Americans respond, this is the captain of a US Navy ship. I say again, divert your course. Canadians are, no, I say again, you divert your course. You kind of have the sense that this, you know, they both really want the other person to do something here. The Americans, and this is in capital, so I guess it's a bit like shouting or loud volume. This is the aircraft carrier USS Lincoln, the second largest ship in the United States Atlantic Fleet. We are accompanied by three destroyers, three cruisers, and numerous support vessels. I demand that you change your course one five degrees north, 15 degrees north, or countermeasures will be undertaken to ensure the safety of the ship. You get the sense of the Canadian response. This is a lighthouse. (laughs) Your call. (laughs) And so easily, humorous as the story might be, whether or not it actually happened, I don't know, but it would be somehow imagined when I could imagine it would or could have. That sense of, you know, something's in my way and it's got to move. I don't want to move. I'm important. And I want it my way. You have that whole sense of kind of inflation and the communication there of I'm the big ship with all the support and you're in trouble if you don't get out of my way. And then you realise, my gosh, there's no way that lighthouse is moving. It's got no option here. The only possibility for avoiding a collision is in the hands of the ship and its captain. And for us, with our experience of life, so much of the time we're saying, no, don't be the way you are. Don't be the way it is. Get out of my way That which I find, to that which we find difficult or challenging. And it just can't be. It just can't do that. Life can't be other than as it is. No matter how much we want it to be, how hard we lean to try and make it be. And in fact, it's ourself that the pressure impacts upon. Life is not impacted by that pressure. It's us that are impacted by it. And it's painful and it's exhausting. It's exhausting. So 
we can reflect on seeing this situation we've come to. And, you know, these days retreats get sometimes advertised, not necessarily guy house retreats, but <clears throat> retreats get advertised as this, you know, really great opportunity to go somewhere beautiful in the Devon countryside and sort of enjoy some relaxing time amongst good folk and with great food and, you know, just the sense of, ah, yeah, that's just what I need. I'll sign up for one of those, maybe even two, you know. Um, and yet when we come here, it's not always like that, is it? It's not always like that. You know, the weather, well, we would really like it to be sunny and shiny and beautiful in Devon, so nice in autumn, and it's grey and it's damp, and today it was cold, at least for me it was cold. And the rice ran out at lunchtime. Did anyone miss out? You don't have to wave your hand, but you know. It's like, I think I said something this morning about there's usually enough food, and then this afternoon maybe there wasn't quite, but... And the cook said, well, we cooked for 96, and there's only 80 people, so someone was hungry. Sometimes it's like that. Well, uh, you know, the room, one person, I think I touched on this the other day, one person wants it cool, and the other fresh air, and the other person wants it warm and cosy and doesn't really care if it smells of 56 bodies. And there's no way that it's going to work for both. Someone's going to be unhappy here. So many experiences we encounter challenge us. And even just in small ways. But part of what's happening here is we get the chance to see how that goes on and what we do with it. You know, we're sitting and the body's uncomfortable. As someone said in the small group, well, you know, one of the advantages of discomfort is that it doesn't, you don't fall asleep. Falling asleep is not an issue. And I said, yeah, that's, that's an idea. That's good. If we all just got rid of our cushions, no one would fall asleep. Take away all this padding and let's sit here really uncomfortably and be awake. Who's up for that? Not sure. Is that someone putting their hand up? No. <laughs> I'm not sure I would be. And yet, oh, that's interesting, isn't it? You know, sometimes we can be there and we're so wanting the pain to go away. Oh, it really aches. It really hurts. Oh, I wish it would stop. And then, miraculously, it does stop. And it's like, oh, great. Finally, I can relax. It just... Ah, <laughs> and it really was the only thing keeping us awake. Why would we do this? So many things here. You know? Someone pointed out today in one of the groups that, I think it was one of the groups, I'm not sure, yeah, I think one of the groups, yeah, um, that uh, we don't ring the bell consistently. It's true. Sometimes I ring it one way, sometimes the other rings it another. My gosh, how confusing. One doesn't know what's going on. Sometimes on a retreat, the teachers sit down, I've done it before, and we say, how should we do it? Should we do it the way you do it? Should we do it the way I do it? Should we find a compromise in the middle? And that can be a useful way to do it. And sometimes the teachers don't do that. They just come in and do what they do. And isn't that just like life? We're not trying to make this not like life. And what do we do with that? You know, maybe, you know, I probably wouldn't really mind too much if Leela did it the way I did it and rang it three times. And Leela probably wouldn't, I haven't asked her, but she probably wouldn't mind if I did it the way she did it, just rang it once. And you guys probably wouldn't mind if we could just sort our stuff out. <laughs> but it doesn't happen that way.
can be hard to just be here together in the silence. It can be a relief, like, oh, we don't have to talk to people, don't have to be someone, don't have to show up in a certain way. But on the other hand, equally true is, but I don't know what they're thinking about me. I've got no way to let them know I'm okay and that I'm a nice person and that I'm quite friendly and that they could actually like me if they got to know me, which they're not getting to know me. And we can, you know, be awkward. That can be uncomfortable for us. Do I look at them? Shall I not? What if they look at me? Do I have to look back? What if they are looking at me and I haven't looked at them and I don't know? (laughs) You know, we can just... Stories, stories about this kind of thing of being around other people. And sometimes it seems for someone they're not quite able to hold the silence and maybe... The need is that I really do need to make sure they're okay or tell them I'm okay or at least just have some warm connection and we find ourselves, someone finds themselves talking to somebody else in the work period. And it's kind of like, oh, phew, just a little bit of human contact. Not necessarily noticing that somebody else who's working really hard to keep the silence is impacted by that. Oh, they're, they're talking. Oh, it's kind of, the waves of it touch us. We feel the ripples of it. And so there's all this going on. And, you know, with that, that's one of the reasons we say, you know, be really sensitive to your activities and notice, and you will notice, I imagine, how we impact each other. It's part of what happens as we become more sensitive here. As we, as we practice, we become more sensitive. We're, we're, we're cleansing, in a way, our senses, being able to sense more subtlety in our experience. And what that means is our activities are more impactful and so you know when we ask people to and we ask you know to really hold the silence it's because it does have an impact and yet of course and I don't know who it is that that may have happened could we now think oh no I've done it really wrong I'm in trouble and no 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 it's not like that but we make these perceptions we create these sense of oh oops oh no oops I'm in trouble It's more like, here's our learning. This is our practice. This is what goes on. This is human life. But it's human life with the potential for having light brought to it. To enlighten our life. Awakening is about opening our eyes to what is true. And so again, a number of people you know, mentioned in the groups that the mind just keeps going. It does, doesn't it? It doesn't stop. We think, if I just leave it a bit alone, it'll just run out of things to do, but it doesn't. It actually really needs to be guided. We need to support and train and cultivate the capacity to be present. It doesn't come easily or quickly for most of us. But if we sustain the process, if we keep giving ourselves to it, we start to notice, as I imagine for some of you, you will at times have noticed, oh, actually it is possible to connect. There are moments where one actually feels a whole breath, or even two in a row. It's like, wow. Or a sense of just a period of stabilizing, calming, steadying. But what we also can feel is this pull for entertainment, for engagement, for distraction, for something more interesting or stimulating than this rather apparently ordinary human existence of just sitting here, 
walking around back and forth, breathing. <coughs> I mean, what has happened to us that this isn't interesting, fascinating, remarkable? You know, for all the great stories and explanations and theories of religion and science, no one really has any idea how this got going. Let alone how it turned up in here, sitting on a cushion. Really? How did that happen? You know, whether we're talking about some guy with a spark at the end of his fingernail or some cosmic bang in which nothing turned into everything. You know, those are just kind of interesting ideas. That's what the scientists' basic one is. You know, suddenly there was nothing, then it exploded into everything. You know? The truth is, we don't know. But somehow this remarkable existence, we have so taken it for granted that rather than paying attention to what's happening, it's actually more fascinating sometimes on a retreat to read the label on the tea bag. Have you noticed how many people? I do it. Start to, you get really interested in the tea bag label or, or just some few words written on the, on, the, on, the, um, on the box that the tea bag came out of. Sometimes they've got really wise sayings from India. You know, and sometimes it's just a list of ingredients, tea. Mm, wow. <laughs> but it's actually interesting, have you noticed? Well, we checked the notice board. How many times did you check the notice board today? Have you read the schedule? Have you noticed that it was the same in the afternoon as it was in the morning? Now, of course, it's fair enough you checked it because we did change it from yesterday. But from here on in, it's not going to change till the day before, pretty much the day we, towards the end of the retreat, the, the last day. So. We sort of know that, but something in us goes looking for the words, for the language, for the something to get engaged with, because we imagine that, we believe that, or we're habituated to that being what we're interested in. And it's not that interesting. So what would it take for us to be interested in this? So interested in this that the other things were really not so much of a draw or a pull. What would that ask of us? You know, the breath, kind of ordinary, kind of boring, not that exciting. Until we really contemplate that if it stops, we're in big trouble. One day, this out-breath will go out. And an in-breath won't come in. We all know this. We've probably already said that to you on this retreat. One or the other of us, I can't remember. And yet, do we really know that? Few are the people, and fortunate are they, few are the people who will know when it's their last outbreath that this is the one. And there won't be another in-breath. Few people would know that. Mostly it just goes out. It doesn't come in. That's it. It's over. No more meditation. So really, the next one could be that one. Every day it happens like that for people who didn't expect it to be so. Every day. Can we get interested in this? I mean, it's remarkable, but it isn't forever. Whatever this is that's happening that we call being alive. It's not forever. 
to get passionate about your practice. Really, sometimes we feel like we're just surviving it at the beginning. It's like just enduring, surviving, trying to make it through. But to see what else we can bring. It's, it's like I was having this reflection today. I come from New Zealand where, there's, as probably you're familiar with the reputation, there's quite a lot of sheep. I grew up in the country. There's not quite as many as there used to be, I have to say. Uh, but um, still quite a few. And herding sheep, when you try to move sheep from one place to another, I don't know if you're familiar with that particular exercise, but it's quite hard work because they all sort of follow each other and then sort of go off in all random directions. And it's a bit like trying to get your mind to be present, you know. Sort of, you're sort of slowly gathering them together and then a few of them go that way and a whole lot more follow them. And, oh, oh, oh. Um, and the thing about if you try to go somewhere with a bunch of sheep, you've got to keep going. Once you start going, if you stop... It's not like they wait there for you to come back and after you've had your tea break and then continue. No, you go back, you stop, they're all over the field again. You've got to start from the very beginning. So it's a little bit like that with our mind. If we decide, oh, I've done enough of this, that was a good meditation, I think I'll have a tea break, morning tea, yeah, put my feet up, start again this afternoon. Really, start again from the beginning. Sometimes... It's hard to get that the sustaining is about our continuity of intention. Not continuity of mindfulness, because we haven't got control of the light switch, as I said. But it's about sustaining the intention, saying, OK, I'm going to keep and be steady with this. See what's possible here. doesn't mean we have to sit cross-legged for you know, days on end. It's more about when I'm sitting, walking, moving from here, going to there, doing this. Can I be interested? Can I be engaged? This is your life. There isn't another one. There isn't a different one. It's this. It's here. There's nowhere else. And you know, if we want to be awake, if we want to be present, we can be. If we give ourselves to it. I mentioned uh, yesterday afternoon that one won't fall asleep holding one's arms in the air. And it's guaranteed, as I said. You can quote me on that. But it's hard work. I remember reading some years, quite some years ago now of a story about Master Kusan, who was a Zen master from Korea and the teacher of uh, Martin and Stephen Batchelor, who also teaches here at Guy House. And he was uh, going on a week retreat and at the beginning he found himself overwhelmed with drowsiness and sleepiness. And he, he was doing this practice to uh, dedicate the, the merit and the goodness of what he was doing for the well-being of a dear friend who was dying. And he was very committed to his practice. And he was just so tired, he'd been really busy. And he was exhausted and falling asleep for the first you know half day or so. And so he said, OK, I'm going to stand on tiptoes for the rest of the retreat. And he did. It's like, whoa. You know? what, 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 what is that in a human being? I've got no idea what it would be like to stand on tiptoes for even an hour, let alone a whole week. Huh? What, what is that in a human being? That passion. We might say, well, all right, for some Zen master. But we're not asked to stand on tiptoes for a week. We're just asked to be wholehearted here. And sometimes what that means for us is going against the patterning. Noticing how we all 
tend to lean in certain directions. And Leela spoke last night about finding the middle way, that place of balance. But it's hard to know where the balance is. It's hard to tell. Often, what helps us find balance, and for instance, with that sense of effort or engagement, is to discern what our pattern is. Start to recognize what our habitual orientation is. So for some of us, and it's pretty common in Western sort of the way we get structured psychologically in the West, is that we tend to be really pushing very hard right from the beginning, even before we've started. We really push hard. And that's our pattern. And so some encouragement, invitation here is a general thing, saying, okay, don't push so hard, because probably most of us are already pushing too hard, even before we realize it. But that's not going to be everyone's experience. Sometimes, you know, our, our tendency is, well, I'm pushing, I'm not doing any of that. And if that's our habit, if that's our tendency, we actually do need to lean in a little bit and make an effort. But we can't tell from the we can't tell you from the outside. No one can tell by looking from the outside what's needed there. But we start to sense, okay, this is this is where I tend to go. This is where I tend to go. You know, sometimes, as we've mentioned, it's really useful to just stretch a little bit around being with some pain or discomfort and just see what's possible for us while being respectful to our body and sensitive to what its genuine needs are. And yet other times, and for some people, and I think probably I was one of these when I began my meditation practice, it's actually much harder to move than to sit there gritting my teeth going, I'm not moving. It's actually much harder to kind of move and have failed to sit there still and to possibly have disturbed my neighbour and possibly have failed at meditation or whatever. Much more the pressure is to make myself do it. And so... Actually going against the pattern in that case is to say, huh, I'll change my posture even before I have to. So the people around me, they won't be impressed by how long I sat there without moving. Give up on that, because that's not what we're here for. And what's interesting about finding balance in this way is that because we get used to a certain lean, like if we're used to leaning this way, this feels about right. If we always do it, even though it's clearly a lot more work for the body to be like this. I'm just kind of exaggerating a little bit. But it feels normal. We get used to it. So if we go like this, it feels like we're going that way. If you understand what I'm talking about there? I actually carry my head a little bit. You probably noticed. I don't know if I should tell you if you haven't. But anyway, <laughs> my head seems to sit on my shoulders a little funny, like just not quite straight up. And what's really strange is whenever someone goes to take a photograph of me, I try and make it be straight, which makes it worse, because something in me can't quite figure that out. And the sense of normal is actually, so I actually get more normal rather than more straight, which is actually tilted. And the best chance of getting me in a picture with my head on straight is by not telling me it's going to (laughs) happen, which is kind of hard if you want the front end. And it's like, oh. So finding the balance is often a case of being willing to be somewhere that's a little uncomfortable for us. In terms of making a little more or a little less effort, for instance. It's often a little uncomfortable. We're not quite sure we're doing it right. But if we pay attention, if we, if we see, if we look there, what's going on, we can start to find that balance. We can start to 
not react so quickly to feeling uncomfortable and not therefore having to go so quickly back into the familiar, the habitual pattern or mode of engagement. And one of the features of this is the, the way in which we, we, we get caught up so much in somehow trying to be okay, or trying to be good, or even better than ourself or somebody else. And we can notice, for instance, in the work period, as someone was speaking about this morning, how there can be a sense of you know, trying to do it well and worry or concern that we'll be judged or criticised if we don't get it done on time or do it perfectly. And that whole way in which we're, we're wired up, it seems, almost to be anticipating some kind of criticism or judgement and under pressure to somehow perform. And we do that to ourselves. No one, at least here, no one's doing that to us. Maybe in our work life or our home life, we actually do get that push pressure put on us. But here, it's mostly we're doing it to ourselves. And that you know, wish to be praised, that fear of being blamed, can be so strong for us. And for most of us, the tendency is to pick up the negative, to pick up the, the fear, the sense of, oh, it's not okay, it's not good enough. It's like a habitual orientation of the mind for many of us. And we can see see the pattern in situations where there's, in a way, a mixed message. And one of the classics that's happened to me on occasion before is uh, having been giving some teaching, say, in the morning, and getting a couple of notes afterwards. And one of the notes says, oh, thank you for your instructions. They were so helpful. They really you know, were so insightful, sublime, beautiful, really deepening my meditation. And the other one says, will you please be quiet in the meditation? You're spoiling the silence. I've heard enough. You know? Shut up. That's not what it says, literally, but that's what it means. Shut up. It's kind of like, so what do I do with that? Well, you know, of course, sometimes what's offered is useful for some and not so useful for another. But the habitual tendency of the mind to go, oop, someone's not very happy. And it's like, someone else is happy. Most of us, certainly when I speak with people here, we tend to pick up the, oop, I'm in trouble, done it wrong, rather than the, oh, that person liked it. So we somehow want to please everybody when mostly we don't. Mostly we don't. And this this habit, this tendency to focus on the difficult, to extract from a, a larger picture that which appears to be a problem and to make that as if it were the whole thing. I remember a very tragic, in a way, experience. I had uh, some years ago, I, I was living in America and I, I was uh, working at teaching at the Insight Meditation Society and living there as a resident teacher in Massachusetts, a retreat sort of sister centre to Gaia House. And we went for a staff outing to the beach. And it was a gorgeous sunny day. It was a lovely sandy beach. The ocean was blue. The sky was clear. The sun was warm. I was basking in that. Oh, it was so different than, you know, what you get here often. LAUGHTER I'm really fine about living in England as it happens, but it's, you know, comparisons happen, and mine doesn't. But what was interesting was that there was all that going on, and in one tiny little spot, there was a fly. And in Massachusetts, they have biting flies called deer fly, and it was one of them, I think. And these things take small chunks out of you when they get hold of you. It, you know, it leaves a trail of running blood when it's finished. And it was sore and hurting. But it was like I was miserable. 
I didn't want to hurt this fly, so I couldn't just sort of bang it. And I was miserable with this fly. It was on my back, I was on my stomach, I couldn't even reach it probably. I can't remember now exactly. But it struck me, here am I, and like 99.9% of my body is experiencing bliss. And one tiny little spot is experiencing discomfort and pain. And what's my life all about right now? That little spot. You know, can you imagine having 99% of your body covered with biting flies and having one little spot where the sunshine got in going, ah, oh, that's nice. <laughs> and it depends sort of what we pick up. Now, actually training the mind, one can train the mind to pick up and say, oh, actually I can pick up this experience. Hmm. Okay, yeah, my knee hurts or my back aches or my head's a bit fuzzy, but oh, right now... This part of my body, left thigh, actually feels quite at ease. And notice that rather than the mind getting tight and contracted, it can start to be touched by that ease. It's like, oh, okay. Actually, we have a choice here about what we pick up. It's not a random thing. If we're conscious, we say, oh, I can pick things up. And not grasping in terms of getting hold of them, but more like what we tune into, what we connect with. Because... So much of what happens that creates suffering and that we can see here is the way in which our mind narrows down. It's like we get this tunnel vision until all we can see is this problem, pain, confusion, difficulty in my life, of which we all have them. But if that's all we can see, suddenly that defines my life. It's the whole thing. And then, wow, it's a problem. Rather than, oh, yeah, it's difficult, it's hard, but there's this as well. So the first training in this is learning to say, oh, there's that habitual picking up of the problem, picking up of the problem. And we're just learning to say, okay, (laughs) I can't stop myself picking it up, but I can realize I've picked it up. Put it down. Put it down. Mind spins. Notice it. Put it down. Put it down. And we start to find some balance. Start to see that in fact, there are more possibilities here than maybe we've imagined. That we are not bound to be conditioned by our experience in the way that it seems to be we often are. We're not bound to be conditioned by it. When it's painful and we lock onto it, it conditions our... It's not just painful, we become miserable. Have you noticed that? It's not just it's painful, but I become miserable. A sense of me arises... Defined by that experience. Of course, other times we try and lock on to the pleasant experience and define ourselves by that. Moment of calm, we try and lock on to it. It's like, oh, this is great, finally, whew, got here. You know, and in our mind we're imagining, oh, I think I'll stay on after the retreat. You know, I'll be here for another month at least, I should think. And maybe, you know, we start to imagine our great meditative career, sort of, you know, maybe I'll ordain, okay, live in a cave as a monk or a nun and sort of, you know, dispense words of wisdom to my followers who come and bring me all my things I need, you know. And it's sort of like, it's another way we try and grab hold of a positive experience. Of course, having done it, we then realise, oh my gosh, lost in fantasy again, and goes the other direction. This urge, this attempt to somehow define ourselves by what's happening, by picking up and creating a story around what's happening that somehow defines not just this moment, but my whole existence, my whole future. 
it's defined in these moments, it seems, when I pick up and attach to and hold on to and define myself by an experience which often I didn't even consciously choose to pick up. It was habitual reaction. Just focus on this, focus on this. And often as that goes on, we, we start to feel a bit frustrated. We start to struggle. It's like, I don't know if I can do this. You know, It's often reported in the uh, interviews, someone will describe the experience of having been sitting in meditation and trying to stop or to start or whatever it is we're supposed to be doing <coughs> and feeling that I can't. And kind of opening their eyes, sort of looking around and it's like everyone else is sitting up really calm looks really still and the thought comes into this person's mind they can all do it you know here we are 50 buddhas to be and one overcooked vegetable <laughs> works for them not for me and then having realized it's hopeless just gives up and moments later probably the person beside them looks over at them Oh, they're very calm. They're not moving. Wow. (laughs) Probably having a really profound experience. And in a way, that could be a profound experience. If we understand what's being shown us here again and again, it's not a comfortable view we're given often. But this way in which we pick up our experience and define ourselves by it. Rather than seeing that there's this whole flow and movement of experience going on and on and on. One of the elements of why we do that so strongly is our resistance to and our unwillingness to experience discomfort and pain. To allow that to be part of. It's never all of, but it's often part of what we have to experience, what's here for us. And very easily there can be the sense somehow that it shouldn't be that way. There's something wrong if that's going on. Pain can arise for many reasons. Physical, emotional, psychological. We can feel it in our bodies, in our hearts, in our minds. And uh, it can be sometimes due to uh, injury or illness in the body to do with early impact and experience in the heart and mind that can arise into experience can be difficult at times. What's important with it is that we include it and yet don't define our experience by it. So when it's here, we can know this is difficult or painful or challenging. We can give it attention. We can allow ourselves to begin to explore it, to see that its nature is something that arises and passes. It's not something we can define ourselves by or need to define ourselves by. But that we can start to open, we can start to soften. It has a very, one of the things that happens is we start to allow ourselves to be touched, even though we might at times resist, as we allow ourselves to be touched by the challenging aspects. When we see they're not the whole picture, that there's also moments of ease, or openness, or connection. We start to soften the rigidity, the tightness starts to drop and there's an opening and a dissolving that begins in which there's a a process of healing that can begin which we understand we don't need to hold ourselves apart from that aspect of our experience. 
We don't need to hold it apart from ourself or ourself apart from it. We actually need to let it in. We actually need to let it in. And it's important. It's not just there to teach us something, although that's part of it. It's actually important. Pain is giving us a very clear message. It says, pay attention here. And you know, ironically, it's the last thing we want to do. We don't want to feel it, so we don't want to pay attention to it. We want it to go away, mostly. When I was uh, travelling in, uh, in Asia in my early years of practice, I spent some time working in a street clinic in Calcutta with a, um, a charity that was providing uh, free medical care to the uh, sort of the very poor and often desperate uh, street people. And amongst other things, we were treating a lot of uh, people with leprosy. And, uh, and I was very struck to discover from one of the, uh, the medical people there, I was just a sort of unskilled volunteer, um, that leprosy is not what I had imagined it to be insofar as it doesn't actually cause the injuries that lepers suffer from. What, injury, what leprosy does is it destroys the nerve tissue so they're unable to feel pain. And when they cut themselves and it gets infected, they don't feel that there's something wrong. When they burn themselves because they can't feel, it starts to break down the tissue. They don't notice it. So they injure themselves. They hurt themselves. They get infections. And that's how they lose parts of their body. And it shocked me profoundly to realize that for these people, the most profound transformation to their their basic well-being would come if they could feel pain. And they can't. They're deprived of that capacity. And then to see, oh, for us, what does that mean? We're actually fortunate that we can feel it, that we can actually know the experience, because what it is saying is, pay attention here. Turn towards this experience. Don't turn away from it. Don't contract and try and squeeze it into oblivion. Turn towards it. Make space for it. Get to know what's going on here. So life includes these challenges, as the Buddha spoke of, the first noble truth. There is suffering, there is struggle, there is dukkha, as the word he used. Dissatisfaction. In life we encounter this, pain. What do we do with that? It calls for us to really bring a greatness of heart, a courage of heart, a compassion and a kindness to the experience we're encountering. To really open our hearts to what is here. And to to really understand that this is how it is for us all. When we think it's just me, or somehow that I've got it wrong, made all these horrible mistakes in my life that ended up with a body, a heart, or a mind that hurts. And it's somehow my fault. We create a sense of real feeling. That experience of pain makes us feel very separate from others. Like it's, it's about me, it's mine, it's only me. And it's actually that sense of separateness that's the most painful. That's the deepest suffering that we associate without realizing it not even realising it's separate from the pain itself, but the disconnect feeling and the separateness 
the isolation that comes when it feels like it's me and it's mine and mine alone. But when we start to see that it's in fact something we all encounter, it's part of the human experience, it's inevitable. This body is born and dies. And on the way along it gets sick, it ages. There's no way around that. This heart feels. And because it feels, it feels what is sweet and beautiful and lovely. But it also feels what is painful and grievous and sorrowful. Precisely because we love, we also feel loss. If we didn't love, we wouldn't feel loss. But if we didn't love, that would be painful too. There's no way out of it. We're going to be impacted. This is part of what's here. It's not all of what's here. But understanding its place, its naturalness, we can start to see that there's more here than just that. We don't need to fixate on it. And we can start to let go of the sense that somehow it's our fault. We've done something wrong here. You know, it's not your fault. Whatever difficulties, struggle, pain you encounter in your life, it's not your fault. There's no other way for this to happen. It doesn't happen different for anyone else. It's not your fault, really. Do we get that? To actually understand the nature of the process is one of learning. And learning happens only in one way. It's rather beautifully illustrated by a story um, of a Zen student who goes to see his master, the senior teacher of the lineage, who's a very venerable and much respected Zen Roshi. And the student has the opportunity to visit just for a brief interview and ask two or three questions. And the form is you have to be quite brief, so sort of comes with some trepidation and also excitement, and goes to the master and she's sitting there looking very serious. And he asks the master, he says, Master, can you tell me, what's the most important thing to cultivate? The master looks at him, she says, Good judgment. Oh, thank you, master. Yes, yes. How do you get how do you cultivate good judgment? Hmm. Experience, she says. Oh, thank you. Yes, I see, of course, of course. How do you get experience? Hmm. Bad judgment. It's like that for us all. It's like that for us all. So if we can hold this sense in a spirit, this life, this process in a spirit of learning, if we can forgive ourselves for the fact that we mess up, because we do, but we only mess up because we're growing and learning. If we stay within what we know and never mess up, we're not growing. We're dead, actually. And so there's something really important about the way we extend ourselves. We open out into the territory where we do make mistakes. But if we keep watching to see what's happening, we start looking, we start to see. We can't help but understand what's really going on. And what's going on is so much more than we've imagined. So much vaster than the way our mind tries to grasp and define in stories and words and language. What's here? So to trust, to trust in this process, to trust our life, even if we don't yet know, 
where it's going and can't yet know where it's going. We can trust where we are and this capacity that we have to connect, to open, to be interested, curious, engaged. And it's simple in one sense, but it's not easy. And yet it's possible. And we're doing it here, together. All of us, in our own way and time. So I'd like to finish with a quote from Ajahn Chah, who was a uh, great and much-loved uh, teacher in Thailand in the 20th century and a uh, teacher of one of my, uh, one of my teachers. Um, so although I never met Ajahn Chah, I have a lot of love for him and his teaching and lineage. And he was once asked, he said, someone asked him, is it necessary to sit for very long periods of time? And Ajahn Chah responded, he said, no. Sitting for hours on end is not necessary. Some people think the longer you can sit, the wiser you must be. But I have seen chickens sitting on their eggs for days on end. Wisdom comes from being mindful in all postures. Your practice should begin as soon as you awaken in the morning and should continue until you fall asleep. Don't be concerned about how long you can sit. What's important is only that you keep watchful whether you're walking or sitting or going to the bathroom. Each person has their own natural pace. Some of you will die at age 50, some at age 65, and some at age 90. So too, your practice will not be identical. Don't think or worry about this. Try to be mindful and let things take their natural course. Then your mind will become still in any surrounding, like a clear forest pool. All kinds of wonderful, rare animals will come to drink at the pool and you will clearly see the nature of all things. You will see many strange and wonderful things come and go, but you will be still. This is the happiness of the Buddha. Try to be mindful and let things take their natural course. This is our practice. Let's just sit together quietly for a moment or two. So we may we all, in our practice and through our lives, come to deepen in meditation, in mindfulness, in an open-hearted engagement with what's happening right here, 
this remarkable, mysterious, and yet very immediate life. For our own well-being and for the welfare of all beings, may our practice deepen. 